have ever wished you could edit your jeans as easily as you edit your Instagram photos? Well, we may not be able to guarantee you that, but we can introduce you to CRISPR gene editing, the revolutionary technology that's making genetic makeovers a reality. Chances are, if you're listening to this right now, you've designed something at some point. Whether that be a decadent dollhouse or an elaborate revenge scheme, you've made something. Now, you can even make your children. And I don't mean this in the middle school sex ed way. I'm talking about all the way down to their genetic traits. Hi, I'm Rama. I'm Alex. I'm Ethan. And I'm Marissa. And you're listening to State of the Pod. To most of us, this process might seem straight out of a dystopian movie. In fact, it is. They used to say that a child conceived in love has a greater chance of happiness. They don't say that anymore. I'll never understand what possessed my mother to put her faith in God's hands rather than those of her local geneticist. If you recognize this movie, you would know it is quite literally taking a stance on the way futuristic technology can create and widen the socioeconomic gap. And while the society described may seem crazy and far off from our reality, the truth is, this dystopian world might actually be closer than you think. Most of us have probably heard of the gene editing technology CRISPR, Cas9. I know I did as early as freshman year of high school. In the broad sense, this technology enables scientists to literally alter the genetic makeup of organisms, and it's fairly common. Imagine you're at your local supermarket and see fruits, vegetables, maybe even your favorite snack. While shopping, many of us seldom read the nutritional labels. If you look closely, however, you might notice something unusual in the fine print. The genetically modified organism, or GMO designation, is one of the most commonly overlooked disclaimers present in a growing variety of foods. In fact, over 90% of the crops, like corn and soybeans grown in the US, are genetically modified in some way with CRISPR largely responsible for this high percentage ever since it was named the Scientific Breakthrough of the Year in 2015. This widespread use has not just taken the agricultural world by storm, but has also made its way into various fields of science, from bacterial resistance research to precision medicine. Since 2012, there have been at least 15,000 published scientific studies that have utilized CRISPR technology, and this number is only projected to keep growing. But where did this technology start? CRISPR is one of those unique discoveries that wasn't built overnight. There was no single epiphany or observation that led to the development of CRISPR, but instead many discoveries were built upon each other, spanning several industries, each of which played a unique role in its evolution. It's amazing to think that the first sign of CRISPR was a simple observation that very well could have gone ignored. In 1987, Dr. Ashino, a researcher working at Osaka University in Japan noticed unusual repeated sequences in the DNA of E. coli he was studying. He was perplexed by what he discovered. In the very last line of his own paper, he even admitted that, quote, the biological significance of these sequences is unknown. <laughs> this would not be the last time these strange patterns were noticed, though. 
1993, a Spanish scientist named Francis Mojica was studying archaea in bodies of salt water when, just like that, Dr. Ishinu found unusual repeating DNA sequences. Mojica thought if these repeated sequences had been found in both bacteria and now archaea, then they must be deeply rooted in the evolutionary tree and have to be important. Also, it was a commonly known fact that in Mojica's time and today that prokaryotes have limited genomes and don't have genetic space for useless DNA, thus convincing him that these observed patterns likely served a functional purpose. Mojica went on to study these patterns in E. coli in the following years, and in 2005, he made a breakthrough discovery. He found that the regions surrounded by these repeating sequences in the DNA of E. coli were exact matches to the DNA sequences of viruses that commonly attack the same E. coli strain. He confirmed this finding by uncovering similar relationships between other viruses and the CRISPR arrays of the prokaryotes they infect. Ultimately, he concluded that these repeats were the basis of a prokaryotic adaptive immune system. It was at this point he coined the term CRISPR, Clustered Regularly Interspaced Palindromic Repeats, an acronym that he thought best summarized the pattern of the CRISPR array. Following this discovery, research labs around the world began dissecting and researching every step in the CRISPR system. Notably, the DNA-cutting protein Cas9 was discovered along the location motif called the PAM sequence, which aids CRISPR in its search for viral DNA, along with the discovery that bacteria and yogurt utilize CRISPR too. Overall, these discoveries slowly pieced together to construct the picture of CRISPR we know today. This story began when a CRISPR-containing prokaryote has successfully fought off a pathogen. Then, these defeated virus fragment regions are transcribed into guide RNAs and fitted with a Cas9 protein, which acts as essentially DNA scissors. The next time the pathogen returns, the guard RNA will match with the pathogen's DNA via base pairing, and a double-stranded cut will be made by the Cas9 protein, destroying the pathogen. A common way to think about this is that Cas9 with a guide RNA is like a monitoring policeman with a mugshot, and it searches in the bacteria's genome for the enemy DNA. Now that we understand how CRISPR works in nature, the next big step was figuring out how we could use it. Three main scientists were at the forefront of this development. Their general idea was that CRISPR-Cas9 could be applied to any organism and target any piece of RNA or DNA by simply changing out its guide RNA. This would enable gene editing as we could cut out or replace whatever genetic material we desired. Dr. Jennifer Gounda and Dr. Charpentier were awarded the Nobel Prize for their work proving this tool was possible, but Feng, Zhang, and others were doing similar work and reached alike conclusions. While it's a heated topic who did what during this time, ultimately this healthy competition pushed labs to innovate and ultimately produce this unbelievable application of CRISPR. This system is revolutionary because it's a tool to get to any part of the genome of an organism or cell type. This includes gametes. Once it gets there, the possibilities are endless for what it can do. It doesn't just have to cut. By fusing whatever tool we want onto it, it can accomplish practically any task. This universal nature gives CRISPR unlimited potential, and it is why this initial discovery was only the beginning. CRISPR, like many powerful technologies, does have a dangerous side that can and may be exploited. 
Not everyone with the pioneering spirit gets a fairy tale ending. This was definitely the case for what many would call one of the most recognized examples of scientific oversight and callousness in recent memory, the Ho Jiankui case. John Kui is now a disgraced Chinese biophysics researcher who specialized in human genomics engineering. His controversial use of genome editing on human embryos sparked widespread condemnation, and his team was indicted for flouting established norms for safety and human protection by deviating significantly from industry standards. The controversy surrounding Jiang Ku's research came into light in November of 2018, when he announced at the International Summit on Human Genome Editing that he had used CRISPR-Cas9 to edit the genomes of human embryos. He claimed to have disabled the CCR5 gene, which encodes a protein that allows HIV to enter cells, and two embryos that were later implanted and resulted in the birth of twins, Lulu and Nana, in October 2018. He later claimed that a third baby, Amy, was also born as a result of his research. His research was widely condemned by the scientific community and bioethicists, who argued that his research posed significant risks to human health and violated established bioethical principles. In addition, Hu's team was accused of failing to follow standard procedures in procuring patients and failing to obtain proper ethical approval. Many critics also noted his refusal to answer questions about his research during and after his incarceration leading many to deduce that his actions were more of a publicity stunt than a legitimate scientific breakthrough. In addition to the bioethical concerns surrounding Hu's research, there were also concerns that he may have inadvertently caused mutations in other parts of the genome as a result of his gene editing work. The CCR5 gene also helps protect against other infections like West Nile, but Hu did not claim to have surmounted that hurdle yet. His research has significant implications for the future of genome editing and genetic engineering, particularly in China, which has been at the forefront of gene editing research for human embryos. While China has been a leader in genetic engineering research, Hu's actions have embarrassed China and are likely to prompt more stringent regulations and institutional oversight of future premature attempts. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Zhang Kui was actually named one of Time's most influential 100 people in 2019. In light of this controversy, many researchers today consider his work on embryos as a safety benchmark for future genome editing experiments, namely considering more institutional oversight and considerations for bioethical implications. The skepticism of gene editing is not just limited to Jiang Ku, though. Other countries have also been criticized for their lax biomedical and editing policies. For example, the mitochondria replacement therapy, a controversial procedure intended to correct gene defects and boost pregnancy success, is offered in countries like Russia, Ukraine, Spain, Albania, and Israel. This treatment is so alluring that some individuals from wealthy and developed countries have even traveled to developing countries to genetically engineer their babies. There are other landmark cases that have been more well-received. Many clinical trials have shown that the CRISPR-Cas9 technology is capable of treating rare and fatal transthyroidin amyloidosis, a hereditary disease that causes heart disease, immense pain, and death. The misshapen protein, TTR, produced in the liver, accumulates in large clumps of fibers that disrupt organ function, primarily in the heart and nervous system. Current procedures involve editing cells ex vivo, then reinfusing them back into the body. 
Researchers at Cambridge-based Intellia Therapeutics and New York-based Regeneron have developed a gene therapy treatment that aims to edit the genes directly into the body. This TTR procedure is more efficient and less invasive. The treatment involves Intellia encasing RNA molecules that code for guide RNA and Cas9 in lipid nanoparticles to be uptaken by the liver. Cas9 then SNPs the TTR gene and the DNA repair processes that are error-prone mend the break imperfectly, halting the TTR production. All participants experienced a drop in the level of the misshapen protein associated with the disease. Those who received the higher of the two doses saw levels of the TTR decline by an average of 87%. However, the challenges with this treatment are that the Cas9 endonuclease and guide RNA must be packaged precisely to prevent degradation during transport. Intellia is also testing methods of delivering the Cas9 package to bone marrow cells, with current trials on mice showing promising results. This could potentially treat sickle cell anemia without bone marrow transplants. This newfound push in the field of scientific advancement is probably a little confusing and jarring. While we do not know what you think about this technology, studies have shown that people are generally excited by this development, but do have some apprehensions. For example, a study conducted by researchers at the University of Pennsylvania surveyed around 2,500 people from all different ethnic, gender, age, and socioeconomic backgrounds demonstrated that this sentiment holds true. They used a scale from negative 3 to 3 to evaluate people's perceptions of CRISPR-Cas9, where a rank of negative 3 corresponded to absolutely not in support, and 3 corresponded to absolutely in favor of this technology. The mean score was 1.65, with a standard deviation of 1.32. Also, a 2022 study of 702 Chilean citizens evaluated their current understanding of CRISPR and its applications in genetic engineering. The study collected data on people's perceptions of common and often stigmatized vocabulary surrounding genetic engineering, before being given a brief education on those definitions from the researchers. Words like cloning and transgenic were some of the least known and most stigmatized from the list. The researchers additionally asked questions including, would you agree to use genome editing in humans in order to improve their health? Where over 63% said yes, or maybe after receiving contextual definitions. Moreover, it was found that there was a primarily negative connotation towards genetic modification in foods. Though there was a stark agreement that the technology should be used to prevent health problems in humans if possible. A general conclusion from this study is that when provided with these contextual definitions, participants were incredibly capable making informed decisions based on the factual information provided. So as these technologies continue to emerge, general education will be paramount for the inclusion of all people when continuing to make ethical decisions about CRISPR technologies going forward. Now that we've all done this thinking about CRISPR, let's try and evaluate our own perspectives on this technology. I have a few questions for you guys. The first one is, do you believe that social media gave people more fear about the potential of gene editing? Something I'd like to note is that social media wizardry may, at times, engage in selective reporting by presenting statistics without relevant benchmarks or historical data, thus distorting the significance of said statistics. For instance, a success or failure rate associated with some round of clinical trials may seem alarming 
but may actually be in line with the anticipated results and with previous iterations of the experiment. This selectivity is a gateway to more bias. Let's say there is a news report that focuses on clinical trials of CRISPR gene editing technology for treating a specific disease, such as cancer or genetic disorders. The media could potentially amplify the statistics to create a sense of fear and skepticism among the public by using the following three techniques. The first and most prominent technique involves the sensationalized headline. In this case, the report could have a headline like, CRISPR gene editing trials failure rates skyrocket, dangerous side effects and limited efficacy. The use of words like fail, dangerous, and limited efficacy can create a sense of alarm and make the statistics seem scarier than they actually are. The second is using emotionally charged language and vivid imagery to describe the outcomes of the clinical trials, such as devastating consequences, gene editing gone wrong, or unforeseen risks. This can intensify the impact of the statistics and create a sense of uncertainty among readers. Lastly, the so-called expert endorsement. Only a few or even a single researcher could be quoted, such as a vocal critic. There likely wouldn't be a balanced perspective, as they can lend credibility to the fear-inducing narrative without considering the broader scientific community's opinions or the potential benefits of CRISPR technology. As we have seen from this podcast, CRISPR needs more than just a few-minute video or single-frame post to be understood well. It's so enticing to just jump to the most extreme applications of CRISPR, like lab babies, but we miss the story and the realistic applications. I fear social media has skipped over this important part. You know, when you posed this question initially, my thoughts went towards popular discussion about genetically modified foods, specifically a law signed in 2016 by former President Obama called the National Bioengineered Food Disclosure Law, which formally mandated that starting in January 2022, there must be a formal label on food or ingredients containing some form of modified DNA. For example, if later today you were to go to a grocery store and buy a product made with corn grown in the U.S., it was most likely genetically modified to resist pests and herbicides, and though it was genetically modified, it does not pose a threat to human health. And I remember in January 2022, when this law was formally instituted, the common sentiments through social media were that, one, it was a baseless law that does very little to allow consumers to make informed decisions, or two, that this disclosure shouldn't even be shared because all it will do is invoke fear in the American people. And while others were saying that this was the government's attempt to create a foundation of trust with this new era of genetic modification. And regardless of anyone's personal beliefs, I think it is apparent that social media did spread fear about GMOs, and it was one of the primary reasons why lawmakers felt it was so important to pass this initial law. And because in actuality there will never be a formal consensus of opinion, while social media does increase the spread of misinformation, in this case, the fear created a healthy discourse that gave a voice to the masses, and that's a benefit that should always be valued. I agree with all of you. I especially want to emphasize what you said, Ethan, about emotional image. I truly believe the news frequently uses emotional language to get us to respond. In my opinion, their goals have expanded beyond being informative. At this point in time, the major news sources are in it for profit as well. I think this desire to get views and money has definitely led to the media vilifying technology like CRISPR since that sells. 
the more dystopian fear certain types of technology incite, the more people will talk about them, and the more news can perpetuate their views on this technology. However, I do feel like it is important to add in some ways the news has been helpful, since it has caused many people to actually look into this technology and learn about it, which has had positive informational impacts. I really feel like a general characterization of the media's role in these technologies is hard to describe, given the complex nature of our society. My next question for you guys is, at what point do we, as college students and young adults, feel comfortable transitioning from non-human subjects to human ones in CRISPR experiments? This one is the hardest to answer. I suppose it all depends on pre-existing regulations. These thresholds, who they apply to, and how stringent they are will be determined by those regulations. Personally, I trust a person's free agency in the realm of bioethics. If they are pioneering and want to volunteer for clinical trials to kickstart human research, by all means, go for it. I agree with you, Ethan. I think for me it really depends on how the regulations would be enforced. Also for me, a big thing would be background research. I want to see evidence of safe animal trials of the same systems before that CRISPR system is tested on human subjects. But overall, I do agree that as long as potential test subjects are clearly informed of the risks and possible outcomes of the study in a transparent manner, then if an individual feels compelled to join a study after they are educated, that should be their choice. Testing on non-somatic cells is undeniably going to be the next great challenge in this field, but an exciting one nonetheless. Thinking back to a couple weeks ago, I was in global health class and we had a medical doctor come in and speak to us about maternal mortality, and she showed us some basic data on population testing for a common hypertension medication. And a startling trend we saw was that many of these basic studies for basic pharmacological drugs do not include pregnant women at all, even in 2023. Through further research, I found the part of the reason why was because of the fear of complex hormone changes that are completely under-researched. But many pharmacologists avoid this demographic for fear of lawsuits. And that's a similar problem I could see going forward with the potential applications of CRISPR technologies in people. If the pharmacological testing space were at a place where we don't feel comfortable testing on such a major demographic of people, I think we have a very long way to go before we can establish this trust that is so pertinent. But regardless, in order to push these boundaries, there will always be a cost for progress. And personally, I want to see a lot more research in many demographics of people so that this cost is evaluated proportionally before we consider human testing. Those are some really interesting points. My next question is who would you feel comfortable giving the right to regulate these technologies, if anyone? It is generally recommended that decisions about gene editing and its regulation should involve a diverse group of stakeholders, regulatory bodies with expertise in biotechnology, genetics, and bioethics, such as government agencies, international organizations, and independent ethical review boards are commonly involved. These bodies often operate within established legal frameworks and guidelines, and their decisions are typically informed by scientific evidence ethical considerations, and public input. I'd like to emphasize two holistic and preventative features. First, the topic of global consistency. Gene editing technologies transcend national borders and have global implications. Regulatory coordination and collaboration at an international level can help ensure consistency and harmonization in the use and regulation of CRISPR and other gene editing technologies preventing potential disparities and conflicts. I also want to touch up on setting a precedent for responsible innovation. Regulation 
and more importantly, deterrence through swift and grave consequences can set a precedent for responsible innovation in the field of biotechnology and establish standards for the development and use of similar technologies in the future. It can also help build public trust by ensuring that gene editing technologies are used responsibly, transparently, and in compliance with established ethical and regulatory norms. Totally see what you mean. Personally, my view, at least for the U.S., is that I would feel comfortable leaving it to the FDA, supported by the NIH, to ensure safety, and that what is done doesn't go beyond the parameters of what people are comfortable with. You guys both make valid arguments, but truthfully, I'm not fully sure who I'd want to leave the regulatory rights to. However, I can say since this is a global technology and any innovation derived from it would affect science in the whole world, I would want there to be a global board. I would not feel comfortable leaving the rights to regulate this technology to just one government or one country. Yeah, I agree. This is a really tough question, and I'm not completely sure that I have much trust in any individual entity to regulate this technology. So. As stated before, I agree that it would be important to have multiple stakeholders involved in this process. Finally, my last question is, given your knowledge of the current socioeconomic state of the world, how do you think this technology will fit into that? The amazing feature of CRISPR is that it's pretty much all-encompassing. It's very versatile and general, with the ability to be used across an array of cells and organisms. I mean, we are dealing with the DNA, something cells can be sequenced by. Gone will be the days of pooling funds and brains for diversified biological mechanisms. Instead, we can invest in the genome from which many deleterious proteins, metabolites, and molecules are derived. Hopefully, this means that diseases that disproportionately affect certain demographics, such as chronic respiratory disease, cardiovascular disease, cancer, diabetes, and more, won't need their own mechanistic solutions. We'll just need to target the host DNA, way to kill a hundred birds with one stone. I also anticipate the adoption of CRISPR in customized therapies and personalized medicine. Tailored gene therapies can be developed for individuals based on their unique genetic makeup. This would again enable more effective and remarkably precise treatments with fewer side effects benefiting people of all demographics, including those with rare or hard-to-treat diseases. While of course expensive technologies like these are at first only reserved for the rich, since CRISPR is not being used for progeny, it will only prolong or increase the quality of life of someone living, accordingly avoiding a Gattaca situation, if and when it should become ethical to apply this technology to embryonic or sex cells, those that do affect progeny, then the tech will likely be cheaper and well-developed. So I do not think this will have a major effect on the socioeconomic status of the country if this trend is followed and research continues. I'm generally optimistic about the potential of this technology. There's an extremely diverse capabilities of synthetic biology that spans medical applications to sustainability solutions. I truly do hope that this technology will be an ideal opportunity to work towards creating more equitable health conditions in low-income areas worldwide. I see what you guys mean, and I generally agree. I think for me, the biggest place of concern is implementation. Since in the past, there has been a trend where a lot of wealthy and famous people um, who have the means to afford these treatments get them easier than the general public. 
For example, Ozempic, a drug traditionally reserved for treating diabetes, has recently been bought by many celebrities, not for diabetes treatments, but for its weight loss properties. I think debating the ethical aspects of that could be a whole other episode, but generally, I believe this example demonstrates how wealthy individuals have easier access to medicines due to their economic status, whereas many people cannot even afford to buy Ozempic when they have insurance and diabetes, let alone when they do not have medical coverage. Thanks for joining us in this discussion on the importance of CRISPR and Cas9 technology in our society. This has been State of the Pod. Your hosts are Ethan Tong, Alex Belgian, Marissa Brown Johnson, and me, Rama Polche. Special thanks for this episode goes to the Milstein Lab and the Investigative Biology Department for our recording equipment and software. See you next time.